It's the 15th of October, if you can believe that, 2016. And this is episode 311 of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Hey folks, Adam B. Levine here. On today's show, we'll join Stephanie and Andreas for discussions on evolving purpose and anti-fragility in action. We'll kick things off with Andreas, and I'll be joined later by Stephanie. Enjoy the show. Andreas, it's been a while. You're on another one of your world tours. Where are you recording from today? Today I'm coming to you from Prague in the Czech Republic. Ah, beautiful Prague. How is it this time of year? It's uh, it's really quite beautiful. It's uh, one of those stunning old European cities. And it's got a really, really strong community here in the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency and crypto anarchy space. Uh, they've got a fantastic co-working area called Parallelnipolis, and they just completed a really, really powerful conference called Hackers Congress. So I was very happy to be here and engage with the community. So the next time you're in the Czech Republic, check it out. <laughs> um, Absolutely. Before we start recording, we were talking about, you mentioned to me um, that Ethereum has been experiencing uh, a series of denial of service attacks. And to be perfectly honest with you, I have not heard this at all. But to be fair, I haven't really been paying that much attention to what's been going on with Ethereum over the last couple of weeks. So can you kind of just give me the background on this? Yeah, so uh, Ethereum just had its second developer conference, DevCon 2, in Shanghai last week. And in order to um, mess with the developers who were at that conference, someone timed a denial of service attack to happen on the first day of the conference. So you've got all of the most influential and engaged uh, developers in the Ethereum space at the conference, uh, with one exception, I think Gavin Wood wasn't there. And on day one, when they're supposed to be conferencing, instead, uh, um, I can just imagine or picture the situation where suddenly uh, everybody's noticing or getting alerts from nodes and noticing the network slow down and bad things are happening and they have to drop everything and retreat to hotel rooms and code furiously to fix the problem. So it was a denial of service attack on the first day. Uh, it targeted a specific feature of the Ethereum virtual machine. Um, the basic background on this is that it appears the Ethereum virtual machine has not accounted sufficiently for the computational impact of some edge cases which means that while paying a small amount of gas, which is supposed to be the, the, the mechanism by which you constrain computational use, you can actually cause the uh, Ethereum virtual machine to expend a large amount of computational effort, either in terms of pure computation, in terms of memory allocation, or in terms of disk access, which should cost a lot more gas, uh, but doesn't and as a result allows someone to fairly effectively chew up the resources of the nodes. Now, on Monday, this was demonstrated very, eff very effectively with a denial-of-service attack that caused a quadratic expansion in memory use from a single contract, leading to memory exhaustion on many of the Ethereum nodes that were running the Go language Ethereum client, or Geth, 
And these clients would uh, try to process the transaction, use up all available memory, crash, or rather get terminated by the operating system for using too much memory, uh, restart, try to sync the blockchain, uh, come across the same transaction, try to process it, <laughs> expand to all available memory, crash again, etc. It's a pattern we actually saw um, with a bug in Bitcoin in April of 2013. I think it was 2013, yeah, with the 0, 0. 0.8 uh, version of Bitcoin Core, which was allocating too many database file handles. Uh, but this scenario where you have essentially a, a client choke on a specific transaction and never be able to sync past it because it always crashes. That was the first attack. Uh, it led to two things. One, a broad recommendation for miners and other nodes to switch to using Parity, which is the alternative um, reference client that uh, ETHCore or GavWood's Gav organization has built. Simultaneously, a series of uh, fixes and patches to the GoEthereum client to solve this problem. Now, because the problem is a mismatch between how much gas is charged and how much computation is required, the fix was to try to optimize the computation because they can't change how much gas is is, is being charged that's a, that would be a change in the consensus rules of how the evm charges gas which would require a hard fork so instead they tried to optimize the computation bring it more in line with the actual amount of gas that was charged so that it wouldn't cause this quadratic explosion in memory and they did that fixed it that lasted about two days and then on day three of the conference Another denial-of-service attack, this time targeting a different part of the system, causing a computational denial-of-service, and then three days later or four days later, another attack, this time attacking a disk space use. And I believe now we've seen the fourth attack uh, yesterday, which uh, once again slowed the network to a crawl and required another set of emergency patch fixes to the GoEthereum client. Uh, Parity seems to be handling things a bit better, uh, but has not been completely immune, and some there have been some changes to that client too. Okay, so a couple of questions here. First off, is this because Ethereum is more vulnerable to this sort of thing because of its complexity, or is this simply a less mature uh, product that is just having many of the attacks that have happened against Bitcoin happen now, as opposed to happening, you know, in in the distant past, as is the case with Bitcoin? So, I mean, like, is this something inherently different about Ethereum that makes it vulnerable to this, or is it just not hardened yet? Both. Um, so, I think the, the best way to look at it is Ethereum, because of its design principles, makes some different trade-offs between flexibility and security. And what that trade-off means is that it has a larger exposure surface to attacks because it provides additional opportunities. One of the key considerations there is because Ethereum causes every node to execute these during complete, potentially complex contracts or programs, that it has to use gas as a metering mechanism to constrain their computation. And so that, that is a higher level of complexity, which offers a lot more flexibility for the Ethereum programmers. And it comes with the cost of a larger exposure to potential attacks, a larger attack surface. Now, this doesn't mean that these attacks can't be thwarted, and as the system matures, you know, reduce the opportunities for denial of service. Of course, that is also a factor, and Ethereum is still in the very early, early days. 
What it does mean, however, at least this is my theory, is that the speed at which uh, Ethereum can mature is, is going to be a bit slower, and it's going to take more iterations to reach the level of robustness against attacks that, that uh, Bitcoin has achieved. So because of the larger attack surface, because of the explicit trade-off to flexibility, maturity will come with a greater number of iterations. Uh, it's going to take more work to get to the same level of security as Bitcoin, but of course, that's an explicit trade-off because it gives us the greater flexibility of this system. It's very interesting to me that, um, that when you run an Ethereum contract, because of the way that the consensus mechanism works, effectively it means that if I put something out there that's just going to be dealing with a small number of people, then every computer on that, that is operating, you know, the Ethereum distributed computer is actually going to have to execute that code on their local machine. Uh, as just so I'm correct about that, right? Yes, that's the essence of the one world computer, the uh, computer singleton, essentially, as it's being described. Okay, so then given that, given that we actually have people executing smart contract code on on all of these endpoint machines, is there additional vulnerability? Can, can that code be malicious beyond what we've seen with something like this, right? They can they can put a, a, a chunk in there, right, that is too big and makes it so that all of the machines, when they come across it, they choke. So I believe that that's what they can do. But the question is, can they actually make a computer swallow a poison pill that actually has negative repercussions on the computer besides shutting down the uh, besides shutting down, you know, the uh, Ethereum, uh, you know, mining or processing uh, portion of it? Well, there's a difference between the theoretical possibility and the practical uh, application of that. Theoretically, yes, you could design a malicious payload. Uh, it is theoretically possible to deliver a malicious payload to anything that has, you know, an execution of input that comes from a foreign source, a tainted input, if you like, where someone can choose what input to give a program. But you know, keep in mind that also applies to Bitcoin. Uh, you could write a, a, a redeem script that, uh, given a particular type of bug in the uh, execution of the stack language in Bitcoin could have external effects, could allow you to break out of the code and, and cause Bitcoin to run something as the Bitcoin executable user. That's the same, the same type of vulnerability that you would see in a, in a buffer overrun or a script injection attack or something like that. The types of application level attacks that you see in web servers, in mail clients, in web browsers, uh, etc. Uh, the practical aspect of it is an issue of attack surface. Um, and so in Bitcoin, it is extremely unlikely that you would find such a vector. In Ethereum, it is a bit more likely, but still quite unlikely. Uh, and you, know, you see that a lot more in much, much more complex execution environments. Okay, so then really, this is more of like a blue screen of death moment, uh, you know, like in the in the <laughs> in the, uh, you know, like never try to demo something at a conference sort of way, except that rather than it being entirely about, you know, mistakes being made on the on the development team side, there's also this network component too, where even if the product works fundamentally, you know, you can still have somebody cause a problem for you. So I mean, is that is that really what it seems like happened here is this is mostly sour grapes? 
Well, at the same time, the um, you know the network did it slowed down, and um, they had to decrease the gas limit in order to reduce the complexity of transactions that you can introduce into the network temporarily to prevent kind of very egregious denial of service. But at the same time, what happened is the diversity of clients, uh, which is one advantage that Ethereum has. There are uh, you know two two primary and a couple other full implementations of of the reference code, that diversity actually served quite well because um, it's not a monoculture. The same attack that worked on the Go Ethereum client, Geth, didn't work on the alternative client, Parity. Um, So that's actually a strength of the network, having that uh, diversity. We're beginning to see alternative implementations in Bitcoin too, actually. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, the CTO of uh, Purse, uh, Chris Jeffries, released Bcoin, which is a JavaScript full implementation. I hope I got his name right. Um, I know him as JJ. It is the Purse.io team. I did see that. Looks like it's uh, it's it's great to see these alternative implementations coming out. Uh, we use Bitcore for a lot of stuff that we do. Bitcore is a library on top of Bitcoin Core, so it actually uses the Bitcoin Core client as its node and validating implementation. There was another one, which is, of course, the, the Bitcoin server, which uh, right. you know, was the original alt implementation of Bitcoin, a complete re-implementation of the consensus and validation code. Uh, but I don't know how well that's been maintained lately, and Bitcoin is a new one. So you know, this brings a diversity to the fully validating consensus-compliant implementations of the Bitcoin system. And that's a good thing. So going back to this, you know, the, the, this attack was a nuisance. Uh, it was also a learning experience. And as exactly in the same way as we've seen these attacks have an effect on Bitcoin, the bottom line is what doesn't kill you only makes you stronger in a system that is adaptive and, and resilient has, at the system level to attacks, even if individual components fail or partially fail. Um, what this ends up doing is making the system more robust to these kinds of attacks and maturing its ability to resist these kinds of attacks over time. So, you know, that's, that's essentially the argument I've been making in my, uh, specifically in my talk, uh, Bubble Boy and the Sewer Rat, which is the humorous version of that, is that continuous exposure to, to a, a live environment with attacks um, strengthens the system. Um, much more than isolation. And so what we're seeing is these attacks are making Ethereum more resilient, of course. They're a nuisance. A lot of people have kind of grabbed onto these attacks and made some maximalist arguments against Ethereum saying, oh, it can never be secure because look, look what's happening here. But I, I don't think that's actually the case. Yeah, it seems like these are just growing pains that necessarily these distributed systems trying to do new things have to go through. You have to figure out, you know, someone has to actually kind of push on the wall in order to make sure that it's actually solid. And it's interesting to see, again, like the, the multiple implementations thing so early in Ethereum's life cycle, I think is, is very interesting to me. Is, what do you think would have happened? Would this have been noticeably worse if there had not been those multiple implementations in this circumstance? Oh, it would have been near catastrophic. Uh, it, it, you would have basically had a complete slowdown of the network to the point where they would have to have pushed emergency fixes while the network was not processing blocks anymore to a client under circumstances with very little testing 
it, it would have made everything much more messy. So it, it gave the developers options and time uh, to address this in a much more careful way, I would say. Uh, so no untested emergency fixes. So that was a good, that was the good news. That was the good news. But I mean, again, it, it demonstrates that Ethereum is not just, you know, Bitcoin with better things. It's it has some fundamental differences, and as I, I've claimed, these are design trade-offs, which adapted better, do certain things, but by necessity maladapted to doing other things. And one of those things is very robust security that can mature very quickly because of the limited uh, exposure or attack surface. The magic word for today's episode is SWAN. That's S-W-A-N. SWAN. You've got until the 22nd to visit letstalkbitcoin.com. You know the drill. The last episode that we put out was interesting because it basically, uh, you know, I, I really kind of try to be a listener surrogate and keep myself out of it. Uh Um, because like if you put yourself into it, then you can be wrong. And I get flack for this sometimes. Um, not, not very often, but you know, occasionally because it's obvious that I, I hedge pretty clearly because I'm mostly just trying to kind of figure out this information and I don't really want to make it about me. And increasingly I'm finding that difficult to do because I have so many strong opinions about the stuff that like we're working on. And so like, that was kind of what jumped out of me about the last, um, piece we did with, uh, John Ratcliffe was that like towards the end of it, like that was actually a real conversation and it felt different than what we've been doing for a long time and in a way i liked it a lot i felt like it was very valuable but in another way it very much may puts me more out there than i usually am and so so what's wrong with that though because the best podcasting is personal it's when you say opinions that might piss some people off but they're your opinions you know yeah i know i i I know that's That doesn't make it comfortable. Yeah. I, you know, I, mean, you know I, I don't know. I guess I've gotten comfortable with this over time, right? Like it was easy to be revolutionary at first mm-hmm. because Bitcoin was revolutionary. And so just like talking about it in any capacity by nature kind of conveys that to to us. And over time we've gotten, you know, I've certainly gotten more conservative and mm-hmm. uh, we've gotten to be less revolutionary and less ahead of the curve. So, so I don't, so again, like, I don't know if it's a, if it's a good thing or a bad thing. I was always excited about the revolutionary parts, and I get less excited about Bitcoin in general and the Bitcoin world um, as it started to become more mainstream. I mean, I think it's changed to the point where like, it doesn't mean the same thing it used to mean when you say disruptive or or like <laughs> decentralized or whatever, you know, because there's so many just like, there's so many like, you know, corporate like... <laughs> There's just these these corporate like Silicon Valley companies that use those words, but like they're they don't really mean the same thing as they meant when there were not many Bitcoin companies at the beginning, you know, when it was all just and I'm not saying the companies are ruining it. I think companies are a great thing. It's just that um, you know, like there's so many of them exist to kind of bridge the gap between Bitcoin and the legacy systems. And in the process, they've kind of dragged Bitcoin down to the level of of legacy systems, not brought the legacy systems up to speed into the future with Bitcoin. You know what I mean? 
Yeah, totally. Yeah. That's that's a that that strikes me as being completely accurate is that the system itself is very 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 hard to change and so certainly I've just come to be like all right, here are some areas where we're just not going to talk about unless we find a partner whose specific talent and value that they bring to the arrangement is that they can negotiate that permission. And that's like one of the most valuable things that you can actually bring to a Bitcoin project, especially something, you know, trying to do something innovative, um, is a deep understanding of the regulatory space or connections to existing regulators so that you can, you know, kind of have an, have an inside track. And so it becomes a lot less about the... Yeah, about the technology and the cool stuff. Yeah. And it's all about like political connections. And that just, that just makes me want to barf you know most of the time it's like that's not not what i'm excited about to say that in a polite way <laughs> yeah so i i totally understand that and the argument that i have been making myself feel better with is that adoption is the important thing adoption is the thing that matters and we've seen now over years that the bitcoin use case the money use case at a fundamental level doesn't connect with the vast majority of people and it certainly is successful in other capacities but as far as pushing towards you know mainstream adoption we don't really seem to to be headed in that direction. And so that kind of leads you down this rabbit hole. And, you know, again, I've gone down it in my particular direction and we're perhaps more regulation uh, averse than most. So we really stay on the side and other people kind of dabble towards the other side. But I do think that that's what it is. It's that in order to try and actually accomplish something that has a chance of being something you could do as a business that would actually support you doing the work that you're doing, mm -hmm. you pretty much have to do something that fits within the paradigm. Or yep. you have to try to do something entirely different, like like we saw with like the Dow, right? Mm. Where you forego all normal structures and that has downsides too. Yeah. So yeah. So I mean, so I guess that's what it is. It's that in the early days you really had, especially right after the Bitcoin, uh, you know, the initial set of bubbles. Um, you really had a lot of people who weren't looking at this from a cost-benefit analysis or looking at this from a, how can I fit this into the existing framework? Because the framework didn't even know it existed at that point. Yeah. And uh, and so there wasn't this sort of attention at kind of any level. And as we've gone down this path, it's become more like that. So, I mean, it seems like the vision, it seems like that reality of Bitcoin as it's developed is actually quite well supported by the vision that we talked about um, with uh, John Ratcliffe last week. Uh talking about, you know, essentially this, uh, the blockchain is settlement and it should be tiny and it should be highly valuable. And then like companies form the layers on top of that. And you might have trustless companies, but they're still ultimately companies. And then you kind of have a system that builds off that. And it's not, it's, it's sort of like a hierarchy, but it's kind of like a reverse hierarchy, right? You have the commonality mm -hmm. at the very base of the pyramid yeah. and then it widens as it goes up, but it's still a pyramid. It's just upside down. Is that better? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, traditionally, the upside down pyramid is the symbol of the people taking back the power, right? And maybe you could right. look at it as just like the companies are, are actually just specialized, they're performing specialized functions, right? Like, blockchain is the most basic thing. So it's not actually like an inverted pyramid, really. It's just like, the complexity it's the goes point up. Of commonality. As you go up. Yeah, it's the common base. Yeah. Oh, and yeah, it's interesting, right? Because again, like that common base, the fact that it is a single point means that it's both incredibly powerful, but also, uh, you know, fragile in, in a way, because if that common point, so again, it's like, I don't, I don't know if it's, I, I don't know if any of this stuff is better. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I don't, 
I, I don't I think it's past the point where we can affect it. You know what I mean? Like there was a time when I felt like the things that I said in on this podcast and like the things that I did in the Bitcoin space like made a difference. That point is long past. Like I now look at it, it's a system and it's too big for me to have much impact on it really. I think the individual actors have become companies. Yeah. I think, you know, like there might be a few open source projects out there, but that's what's happened. It's just like we started off with the ability for people to mine individually on their computers. And then you go to pooled mining, like as the Mm -hmm. amount of participation goes up, naturally you have people kind of grouping together into these different types of structures and stuff like Mm -hmm. that. So I don't know. So, I mean, so the, the Bitcoin that you and I were initially very, very interested in my, my interest in Bitcoin just flat out initially was that after watching kind of the gold and silver markets for a number of years, it became really obvious that the price was highly controlled and that it didn't really reflect reality because you had these, uh, you know, not just algorithmic trading, but you had multiples upon multiples upon multiples, paper copies for every right. uh, you know physical piece. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so Bitcoin was really exciting to me in part because uh, my thought was, well, actually, this is this is this will never have that problem because it will mm-hmm. always be delivered because it's easiest to, to accept delivery than to trust somebody else and to risk potentially even a very small chance that they would uh, screw it up. But but yeah, now we're getting to the point where Bitcoin could have that problem because there, you know, there's people who have functioned within the legacy system for so long that that's how they know how to do business and how to make money. And so they're introducing the the ability to kind of manipulate, I don't know, with, with Bitcoin in the same way as the silver markets and gold markets are. And yeah, like you would get called a conspiracy theorist if you said that by some people. They'd say, oh yeah, gold and silver prices are being manipulated. And they'd say, yeah, yeah, right, whatever, crackpot, right? <laughs> but then it came out like, you know, news articles came out and they're true, right? Like uh, who, um, uh, Germany wanted to like repatriate their gold, right? And the US was like, oh yeah, we'll give it to you in like eight years, right? <laughs> give us eight years. <laughs> and there was like Deutsche Bank was like doing some other there was a huge depositor that wanted to like withdraw a bunch of gold and silver and they were like, oh yeah, you can't actually see it. Or no, he just wanted to see it and and they wouldn't let him see it. And you know, there's all this funny business going on. Well, you know, the years have passed, but nothing, I mean, you know, that that's kind of been one of the other things is I've had this, nothing's changed. Yeah. I mean, this, it cycles a little bit crazier, you know, I mean, things seem to continue to continue to continue to go faster, but fundamentally nothing has actually changed. Yeah. I know it's kind of sad to, to realize that because I, I sort of had hope. I like my starry-eyed idealism back in 2013 when we started this show. <laughs> like, I thought Bitcoin was going to be different, but it wasn't really different. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. It is what it is. I I can't be like too disappointed about it. I remember this email I got from a guy like who listened to the show right at the very beginning of when we started it, and he said, "You know, I think this I." I see what's coming down the road. I see the writing on the wall. It's it's going to be really cool to use Bitcoin and really fun for like a couple of years. And then at some point, like the regulations are going to step in and it's going to become like really controlled and like corporatized and regulated and all this stuff. And um, then it's not then the party's going to be over, basically. And I said, oh, well, I hope that doesn't happen. But it's totally what I, he was totally right. <laughs> It's one path forward that we still have. I think that there are still a lot of variables, but the thing that it continues to be, from my perspective, is not about Bitcoin. (laughs) You know, I mean, like the times when it is easiest to explain Bitcoin are the times when people are most aware of and unhappy with their money. Mm -hmm. And so that, again, continues to be the thing is that like Bitcoin, 
is this system that, you know, whether or not it's working as the way that we would have wanted it to be at this point, it still exists out there in a way that's very disconnected from the existing system. And that's a you know negative as far as adoption of consumer things. We have to come up with ways to essentially band-aid over that fact because it still is like one of the biggest problems is actually just moving from dollars into Bitcoin or anything else for that matter uh, for the first time. Um, so, I mean, you know, like, again, all of these things that are advantages in some ways or disadvantages in other ways, it's just like it's, you know, it's a different roll of the dice. Thanks for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Bitcoin. Content was provided by Stephanie, Andreas, and Adam. Music for this show was provided by Jared Rubens and Raider. This episode was edited by Adam B. Levine. Any questions or comments? Email adam at letstalkbitcoin.com. Have a good one.